You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to another edition of the View from the Bridge podcast. Once again, we come to you following a Chelsea defeat, this time to Tottenham. Um, it was another poor first half from the Blues, and then Oliver Skip and Harry Kane made sure it was an even worse second half. Um, I was joined there by Adam Neeson, who I'm also joined with by today. How are you doing, Adam? Good, good. Ready for another therapy session. <laughs> Very much so, very much so. Um, so I guess just to get straight into things, obviously another disappointing defeat. I think the first goals Chelsea have conceded at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in the Premier League. But uh, maybe the biggest drawback from the day is seeing Thiago Silva go off injured in the first half after that collision, um, I believe, with Kane where he went down. He obviously tried to continue, but it was pretty clear that he had an issue with his knee. And then the club have confirmed today that he does have some ligament damage and he is now likely to miss some big games. Yeah, I don't know if you could ever class losing to Tottenham uh, as sort of a lesser evil there. But um, but yeah, losing Thiago Silva is massive, of course, especially with the Champions League game against Borussia Dortmund uh, next week. I think the reality of it is that we know Chelsea's Premier League season isn't really going in anywhere at this stage beyond perhaps Gallo's humour of people saying a relegation battle. But I think the reality is Chelsea are going to finish mid-table and there's not much really to talk about Premier League-wise. So all eggs were in the Champions League basket and to lose Thiago Silva for that game, a game that Chelsea have to turn around or a tie that Chelsea have to turn around is, is huge because you'd want his experience on those nights. You'd want his leadership in that defence. And it does mean that Graham Potter has another headache uh, to solve because obviously there's no Benoit Badia-Shield for that Champions League game either. So you are probably looking at a pool of, of Wesley Fofana, who's just back from injury himself, Kalidou Koulibaly um, and Trevor Chalaba, who for reasons I'm not entirely clear of, as it sort of slipped out of the pecking order entirely. I mean, he wasn't even in the squad at the weekend. So, yeah, it's not easy to lose Silva. Um, it's compounded, I guess. Another pretty miserable weekend to be a Chelsea supporter. You go to Tottenham, 
even admit the awful form Chelsea were confident or there was a confidence that Chelsea would suddenly raise their level because it was Tottenham and Chelsea don't lose to Tottenham at least not very often um, but there was very very little to really cling on to at the weekend and I actually think that's why that's that's probably why Potter is under even more pressure this week than losing to bottom of the table Southampton because there was very very little I mean you know I wrote a piece yesterday that speaking to a few of the fans who were in the away end and the general feeling was sort of apathy. They were they were consigned to losing uh, to Tottenham, which going into the game, I thought there'd be huge anger uh, if that happened. And, and, you know, the result of it was just that there was a sort of shrug of the shoulders and, okay, this is where we are at the moment. We are losing games. We're not playing well. And I think that's a bigger issue than anything else um, for Chelsea at the moment. Because once you get to that stage where supporters, I don't want to say they don't care, but have a sense of resignation before matches are even played, it's very difficult to come back from that because there is a there is a sort of intrinsic broken connection there. And I don't know if, if you can really fix that um, because even if Graham Potter was to now oversee a win against Leeds, oversee a win against Borussia Dortmund, I mean, they're big results, but... As soon as Chelsea hit another sticky patch, I just don't see the goodwill being there no matter what. So quite a miserable start to this podcast, I'll admit. Um, and as I said, it is going to be somewhat therapy for the next half hour or so. So, um, yeah, melancholic start maybe is the, the way that this podcast is going to go. But, um, but yeah, it's hard to really find too many things to be optimistic about right now from a Chelsea perspective, which um, as, as someone who supported the club for 25 plus years, longer than that now, um, is quite a, a sad state, really. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And obviously, I think we saw another first half that is probably up there for one of the most dull first halves of the season, like Southampton. Um, you're in a situation where Kepa keeping the ball too long and, you know, that uh, Stuart Atwell-Var scenario that saw Hakim Ziyech sent off and then not sent off probably provided the most entertainment of that 45 minutes. But Chelsea weren't able to really respond in the second half. Obviously, how early that first goal came from Tottenham would have been a real hammer blow. Um, and maybe, while obviously there was a certain apathy from supporters, there's... You're starting to see hints of frustration on the pitch. I think the one that stands out, uh, Mason Mount unhappy uh, foul not being given, I believe, kind of screamed in Stuart Atwell's face a little bit. Um, I think Chilwell as well made his frustration clear that he wasn't getting the movement he wanted in that half. Um, and don't get me wrong, these are things that will happen all throughout football matches throughout every season but um i guess these moments you start looking a little bit more at and even if things on the training pitch are, are going well and the atmosphere is good as we kind of have heard over the last few weeks something's obviously not clicking on match day at the moment no and i think it's it's a difficult one and graham potter reiterated this uh, in his pre-match press conference that he can't be somebody he's not. He can't be Thomas Tuchel. He can't be Jose Mourinho. 
he can only be Graham Potter, and Graham Potter is a more reserved, measured person on the touchline. He doesn't rant or rave. He doesn't lambast officials. He doesn't partake in a lot of the performance element, I guess, of of, of, of many head coaches. Um, Antonio Conte is a great example of that. Obviously, he wasn't on the touchline um, at the weekend, and you know we hope his, his recovery continues well. But he is another example of a coach who very much is is showing every single emotion on that on the touchline and that isn't Graham Potter and I think it can be an issue at times it's definitely an issue for supporters because it's an easy way to build a connection with supporters is to show that you care to show that you're in, in invested as much as they are um I spoke to some people around the club after the the Southampton defeat um and this was in an article I wrote last week that you know after the Southampton defeat I think there was an expectation from from players that they would be uh, chastised. Um, you know, they would be uh, a sort of raking over the coals almost after that game because you've you've lost at home to bottom of the table, Southampton. But as I was told, it was very measured still from Potter, um, and that surprised that surprised some people um, because under Thomas Tuchel that wouldn't have happened. Um, and that isn't ideal an ideal place you want to be where people are sort of referencing Tuchel back at you because that era is over and it's gone but it kind of shows you that sometimes players do need that kick up the backside when things aren't going wrong and, and maybe that is something that Graham Potter isn't gonna isn't gonna do because that isn't his style and and as he said many times he's progressed from I think it's the ninth, ninth tier of English football he says to, to the coaching Chelsea so you can't say what he's done along the way has been wrong but maybe at a big club you do need to, to sort of be a little bit more authoritative a little bit more uh have a bigger personality i guess to really drill into players who you know a lot of them are, to, are top tier players a lot of them have won the champions league but um but yeah at the moment it's just not working for him and it's 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 not nice and what he you know revealed at the end of last week that he uh, had received emails wishing death on him and his children i mean that's completely unacceptable and disgusting and nobody should have to deal with that no matter their profession and no matter how poorly they may be performing in their profession but um but that's a sort of a separate issue you know you can find that absolutely abhorrent but you can also have the conversation that at the moment things aren't going well for chelsea and and Graham Potter isn't doing a good enough job um, in 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 that respect. So, yeah, it's it's a difficult position um, and one that makes Leeds really really important. Chelsea have to try and win that game and, and build some momentum going into Dortmund. And I just wonder with the kind of that point you made about the the wrecking of the calls and th- does Graham Potter have kind of enough support from senior players? Obviously, we've seen lots of young players come in, but are, are the senior players? I don't know, I guess holding the squad to account. Um, obviously, Aspilicueta at the minute, club captain, he's unavailable due to um, the concussion protocols. We've now seen Thiago Silva um, become injured and he obviously had the armband at the weekend. Uh, Reese James picking it up. Do, do the Chelsea squad do enough to you know keep the standards high even though in the background we're here in this kind of long-term project? I think... He, and Noni uh, Madueke mentioned it in an interview recently that they were kind of 
sold the project and that these things can take a long time and under Potter, the, the progress could, could take a little while, but who, who is there kind of demanding the standard now? I mean, there, there are senior players, of course there are. I mean, you, you look back at, there's probably three groups of players now. You have the 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 players who were there in the Abramovich era, you have the players who came in in the summer, and you have the players who came in in January. Um, there's going to be a lot of different personalities within that, a lot of different feelings within that. There are senior players with a lot of experience. Obviously, Cesar Azpilicueta, you know, has has won everything there is to win, and uh, he he is a big personality off the pitch in in that dressing room in terms of making sure new players settle, trying to show the standards of playing for Chelsea, trying to explain to new signings what it means to play for Chelsea and the demands that are put on you. But I do think, and this is something right, I've been told going into the summer that Chelsea want to look at is they feel they need maybe one or two more leaders in that team at the moment. Um, You know, maybe more forceful personalities in that team who, when Chelsea suffer some adversity in games, can react and can drag the team back into games through through captaincy or, or, or through leadership or whatever you want to call it. It's why... To me, the you know, we'll probably speak about his name a lot going into the summer, but Declan Rice is, is a sensible target, not only because of his footballing ability, but because of that force of personality. He is a big personality. He's captain West Ham for probably the best part of two years now. I know Mark Noble was still around last season, but he didn't play too much. Declan Rice is a big personality. And look, if it's not Declan Rice, you need someone else because you need somebody in this team to to come in and, and really shake players up when when they're not when they're not at the level they need to be at Chelsea historically in the past. I mean, you, you go back to I mean, I don't want to hark back to the past all the time, but you do go back to that first Jose Mourinho team and you had big, big personalities, you know, Petr Cech, Frank Lampard, John Terry, Claude Makalele, and obviously later on Michael Ballack, Michael Essien, Didier Drogba. I mean, th- there were so many national team captains just in that one squad. Um, it meant that, without wanting to do too much of a disservice to Avram Grant, it meant that when Chelsea did lose Jose Mourinho first time round, they almost went on to autopilot. And by doing that, they reached a Champions League final. Could you envisage a situation where that happened? Now with Chelsea, I don't think so. Um, and I wrote a piece yesterday about how Chelsea haven't come from behind uh, no, they've come from behind twice to win Premier League games all season. One of them was in Thomas Tuchel's last game in charge. One of them was Graham Potter's first Premier League game in charge. And that's it, which, considering they've now gone behind nine times, I think it is, in recent weeks, they haven't shown any real sign of coming back. They haven't even got a draw when they've gone behind in the last few weeks. Um, so there is a question there about you need to, to maybe toughen up a bit. The squad needs to toughen up a bit. They need to be able to handle difficult moments better. And it's one of these great... I mean, you go back to the... Champions, people are, oh, you know, that this is a group that won the Champions League. And it's, you know, it's an absolutely fair point. They handled that Champions League pressure. But let's not forget that on the run to the Champions League final, Chelsea were never behind in any of the knockout ties. They never had to overcome. They were always leading and were able to control the situation. They never had to react to a situation which... I think probably people forget a little bit. But um, 
yeah, I can't really remember the original question now. I've gone on a monologue, I appreciate. But um, yeah, the gist is definitely that Chelsea need a, a leader or two to be added to that squad in the summer because it is is an intangible you can't measure by stats or, or anything like that. But it really does matter that you have those those forceful personalities in your squad to keep standards where they need to be. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and I, I guess we can't really avoid talking about Graham Potter in terms of his future at Chelsea. Um, I think we spoke last week about how big Tottenham, Leeds, Dortmund was going to be in terms of momentum. Um, and obviously that hasn't got off to the best start. Uh, Leeds, another game where the fans are going to feel its importance. And then Dortmund is obviously a game that is you know, dictating what Chelsea can do for the rest of this season, um, success-wise. Where is Potter at in terms of his security at the moment? Um, I know obviously we hear that he, he has support, but is is there a tipping point where, where the form comes too much? Do I know you kind of joked about the Gallows home of relegation, but does that become a fear at some point that uh, tips the balance? I think it's it's Chelsea going to reach a crossroads and it, they'll reach them after Dortmund, I think, because if, for argument's sake, Chelsea were to lose against Leeds and to lose against Dortmund, that is the season over, effectively. They're not, they're not going to do anything in the Premier League and they're out of Europe. You're then in this very weird predicament of how do you handle the rest of the season? Do you let Potter continue and take it on and accept that this season is a complete write-off, but Potter is going to be making decisions over players over in the last two months, over who he wants to go forward with, who he doesn't think are going to fit his tactical system long-term, basically who have futures at the club. He doesn't make that complete decision, but he has a big say in it. Or do you decide, okay, this is clearly not worked out. We have to take this decision now. Let's get another head coach in. Let's give them two months to work with the squad to identify players they want to work with and can take forward and fit their system. And then then you go into pre-season and there's a lot less work to do for the new head coach because they've already had some time to make a lot of decisions. They don't have to go into pre-season with 30 players and then work out who they want to progress with. That's already been done. And then you can just attack pre-season in a lot more of a professional way, hopefully, than Chelsea's last preseason, And I think that's probably the difficult reality that, that Todd Bowley and Badele Bali have to face because they have commendably stuck with Potter so far. Maybe they had to, given the choice they made to sack Tuchel and bring him in. Um, I mean, they, they would their credibility would, of course, suffer uh, if they were to then sack him. But I think that that's a tipping point. We'll see how the next two games go. From a purely unemotional point of view, you have to look at it and go, okay, what is going to be best for Chelsea this, well, not even this season. If they lose to Dortmund and Leeds, it's what is going to be best for Chelsea next season. 
is it to continue with Potter and let him run at it through preseason, or is it better to get him out, get a head coach in, let them have a couple of months to analyze the squad, and then let them have a run at next season? And I don't envy them, to be honest. It's not an easy decision to make. And no matter what decision they do make, it will be seen as the wrong one by a lot of different factions and and different aspects of the Chelsea support because there is still some support out there for Potter. I think it's dwindling week by week. But there will be those who still feel he deserves a preseason or at least should be given a preseason. Um, but there's a lot more who feel that a change is needed. And I think one of those debates that we're, we're now starting to see is whether Potter should almost pick his, his squad that he wants to work with as in, in terms of a match day squad and perhaps start casting players who he doesn't see a long-term future for at Chelsea um, and put them to one side. Um, I know a lot of people are seeing that as the kind of most efficient thing to do. I know it's a conversation we've had before where that obviously brings difficulties in terms of having unhappy players around uh, the training ground. It will obviously impact any potential resale value that the club can get in the summer. Where do you sit in that, and how Potter um, can you know take this group forward and try and be productive w- without? I mean, I say without upsetting players. You hope the players would be upset if they're missing out on match day squads, I suppose. But is he just left in a no-win position there, and it's just his job to manage that because he's the head coach, or is there something more he can do at the moment? I think, without trying to completely reframe the question it kind of goes back to, to what we've just been discussing because if if the season is done, then you have a lot more authority to just go, okay, right, this season's done. I'm focusing on next season. These are the 23, 24 players I want to take into next season. Sorry, everyone else. We need to start planning for next season. Until that point, it is very hard because you never know when you'll need a player back uh, we know Chelsea's injury record this season. They've had to rely on a lot of different players. So it's 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 not easy to simply ostracise seven or eight players and go, okay, right, you go over to the academy building because I, I don't want to play. I don't want to play you. And then maybe in three weeks' time, having two or three injuries in, in a position and then having to sort of bring them back, it's, it is difficult. But I can completely see the argument why people feel it's it's time to maybe move on certain players of certain age profiles, maybe to, to then focus on the younger players who are going to be here for the next three, four, five years in theory. It's a fair argument. Um, and it's one that I can understand if people feel that's the wrong thing not to have done by now because the debate around Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, for instance, is an interesting one because, yes, Chelsea need a goal scorer. But is Aubameyang the solution to that long term? Probably not. So do you then invest time and effort in in moulding David Atro Fafana, giving him Premier League minutes, giving him that Premier League experience? Would he score as many goals as Aubameyang? Maybe, maybe not. That's something you'd have to, to sort of play off it. And, and and you say, you know, sorry, Pierre, we, we kind of messed this up for you. We, we do appreciate that. It's, these are not easy conversations to have. It's not an easy situation to handle. I have sympathy for Potter in, in that respect. Um, but I don't think it's as easy as people want to make it out to simply jettison seven or eight players and then not have consequences or issues with that. 
unless you do send them across the road to the academy building at Cobham. But even then, as I said, you never know when you might need someone back. Um, yeah. And that's sometimes, again, sometimes you look to loan a player out and then you want to use them regularly as soon as they don't complete yes. that loan deal as well. Exactly that. Exactly that. You <laughs> never know when you might need a player. Although, you know, that, that in itself is, is you know, it's a strange situation to be in suddenly having Hacking Ziesh such an important part of your team when mere weeks ago you as a club were, were willing to let him leave for the rest of the season. It's probably quite indicative of the almost lack of, of joined up thinking sometimes at Chelsea at the moment. And I guess just one other point about things on the pitch, um, one kind of element that I found interesting on social media and, you know, the, the general conversation around Chelsea is that lots of people seem to be hoping that Chelsea go back to a back three at the moment. Um, very different conversation to what was happening earlier in the season where I think everybody was hoping for the the freedom of the back four to see more, more attack and free-flowing football. And obviously that's not panned out particularly well. Um, do you think that's something Potter will be considering? Um, I guess particularly because Silva's not going to be there. How, how does that impact that decision as well? It makes it harder, doesn't it? I mean, if, as we said, you know, if you're looking at a, a centre-back stable right now, and and maybe for the Champions League game, you've you've only got three, unless you're you're going to play Mark Kukurea there, I suppose, or as Pelicueta. But uh, you've got three out and out centre backs for that Champions League game. So do you go run a back three for that, and maybe have to bring in Aspi or or Kukurea if if you want, or as, as deputies you could do. That maybe puts Reese James and Ben Chilwell in positions where they can be more threatening because the, their influence was really diminished at the weekend, I thought, against Tottenham. We really didn't see them have a great deal of, of impact in the final third, especially Reese. Uh, you know, I saw a pass work going around and Chelsea barely got the ball to him for most of the game. I can see the logic. I can understand the calls for it. Potter seems to have settled upon his system, although, to be fair, against Tottenham, they were playing a back five out of possession again. Uh, Ziyech was very much tucking in as, as a right right wing back and, and Reese was tucking inside to, to centre back. So they were going back to that hybrid model that, to be fair, Potter used quite a lot in his early games in charge. And those are the games that Chelsea performed, maybe not well in, but they were getting results. But then they had the Brighton game. And for whatever reason, that's really seemed to have... Of sort of spooked, spooked Potter from from using the the sort of system. He, he from that point on, it was very more a regimented system. He's gone with a four two three one since the World Cup. It was working in an extent that Chelsea were having some chances in games and not conceding too many chances themselves. Whether or not they were creating chances through more individual quality than than structure is is up for debate. I think it would be. I think it would be a sign again that Potter's brain is a little bit scrambled if he was to change system again and that he is just scrambling and trying to find a solution and clutching at different things and throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks and it just gives off the the impression still that he doesn't he doesn't have a massive solution for for Chelsea's myriad of problems so I don't know is the answer to that question should Chelsea switch to the back three they could do. Would it sell everything? Probably not. 
Does it help them score more goals? Debatable. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, as you did mention, Chelsea's myriad of problems. I guess we move on to another one. Um, We've already kind of highlighted how bulky the squad is at the moment. And moving into the summer, that is obviously going to be an area of priority i guess uh for chelsea to start moving players on um to an extent i guess you could argue it was last year and it didn't go particularly well for some of the players that they did want to leave but uh i think it's a bigger priority this summer and i know there's been reports out uh today as well that Matteo kovacic um, is of interest to manchester city and i guess he is in a position which a few of the players are where he's sort of heading towards final year of his contract um, and Chelsea are going to have a decision to make on whether he stays or leaves. Um, I guess what what do you think of his situation and you know that that general sort of profile of player? I think Loftus Cheek might be in a similar situation, uh, for example. And where does their future lie? So this is going to be an issue Chelsea face going into the summer because you have a handful of players going into the last 12 months of their contract. It's not just Mateo Kovacic or Ruben Loftus-Cheek. There's obviously Christian Pulisic. There's obviously Mason Mount, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who we know is probably going to be allowed, it will, will be allowed to leave. Cesar Pelaqueta, who may a year later than planned head back to Spain if, if the opportunity arises. So there's, there's big decisions for Chelsea to make because the ownership do not want to be in the position where they what they inherited basically in, in losing Christensen and Rudiger for nothing. And that, and, you know, going into this season with Jorginho and Kante's contracts up in the air as well, that is a, you know, they don't want that. Two years is going to be the threshold for contract decisions slash player sales, we're told. So there will be other players to, to talk about as well in the summer. Um, off the top of my head, I think Kai Havertz has two years left as well. So these are big, big calls for the ownership to make and big decisions. They are going to have to hold contract talks with these players, sound them out, see what expectations they have, see if they're willing to sign a new contract or if they want to go somewhere else for a new challenge or or for whatever reason, uh, and then and then go from there. The, the issue is that the European transfer market is still quite depressed. There isn't a huge amount of money sloshing about outside of the Premier League, which then makes Premier League to Premier League transfers more likely. Uh, the Mato Kovacic Manchester City link makes sense because Manchester City could pay the sort of fee that Chelsea would expect for a player of Kovacic's calibre, even with a year left on his contract. Mason Mount to, to someone like a Liverpool. Again, it's a similar thing. You're not going to get the same level of, of money that you would if you tried to sell Mason Mount to Europe or Matteo Kovacic to Europe, or Christian Pulisic to Europe. The Premier League is where all the money is. And I think you will probably see Premier League to Premier League transfers more often in the, in the coming years as, as the financial power of the Premier League continues to grow. 
so it's 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 a big summer again <laughs> another big transfer window which will be a lot of work but there are going to have to be big decisions made and not all of them are going to be have made from a position of strength because once a buying club knows you need to move a player on because they're not signing a new contract that does weaken your bargaining position uh, we've seen it in the past we saw it with Thibaut Courtois forced to move through to Real Madrid uh, late late-ish into the window and Chelsea had to bite the bullet on that because because they didn't want to lose him on a free so yeah it's, it's not going to be easy for Bowling and, and, and Iqbali to, to again try and well they're not going to be doing it the recruitment team will but to try and oversee another sort of summer transfer window of upheaval and the only thing I guess you can say is or the most important thing that they have to do I guess is to do it early to make sure that these decisions are taken early that there's clarity about who's staying, that there's clarity about who's going, there's clarity about who potentially is coming in. And then come pre-season, you have, as we were referring to earlier, you have your core group of 23, 24 players in place so that the head coach, for argument's sake, Graham Potter for now, knows come the first day of pre-season, be that in Cobham, be that in the US, wherever that may be, you know the squad you're going to be working with going forward, or, or at least... It's 90% of it because um, you don't want another transfer window like last summer where players were coming in late uh, and you don't want to continually uproot players and, and change the squad around. It just makes it difficult for a head coach. So, so yeah, there's a lot of work probably to do in, in terms of preparation for the summer window as much as the work will be undertaken in the summer window too. And I know a lot of people are kind of seeing Graham Potter's Kind of reference of last year's preseason as, as a dig at Tomic to Thomas Tuchel. Um, I don't think it was, but could it have been maybe him pushing agenda saying we can't have that repeated this summer? And maybe perhaps in terms of the squad, it, that needs to be more kind of definitive because obviously we saw Tuchel still playing a lot of players who weren't there by the end of the summer in those early friendlies in the US. Look, I was there for much of the preseason tour uh, last summer, and it was pretty clear Thomas Tuchel was not enjoying it. Uh, he didn't like he didn't like the the pitch at UCLA. He didn't like the travelling. He didn't like how hot Vegas was. He didn't like how hot Orlando was. He didn't like how many flights Chelsea had to take. The humidity of Orlando. I mean, the by the time it got to that Arsenal game, which they lost four nil from memory it was pretty obvious that Tuchel was very unhappy the squad were drained and that the mood around the camp was pretty low considering they'd only been back in pre-season for about three weeks so you don't want a repeat of that the most important thing from my view if, if you want to go to the US which you know all indications are that Chelsea will be going back to the US you want to probably be based on one coast um not jumping around time zones you want to try and minimize the travel you want to try and be at a location that of course you want the sun out you want good weather you want that that sort of warm weather environment to train in but you don't want it to be suffocatingly hot you don't want it to be i mean you know if anyone's been to orlando before the humidity is is, is unreal you don't want to be training in that as players, you you want to be in in a, in a atmosphere slash you know environment which helps you prepare for the season, not hinders you. So, 
the lessons have to be learned. I'd, I'd like to think Bowley and Igbali, you know, that they are very intelligent guys. They will have, you know, they were at the preseason. They were at the preseason tour, so they know. They know the challenges that, that come with a preseason tour. Now they probably know the pitfalls to avoid. You'd like to think they're going to be keen to avoid them. Now, whether or not they will is is another issue, because I've seen you know there've been reports Chelsea are willing to potentially play a game against Wrexham. That is obviously more of a commercial thing, but look, you know, if if, if your first game against if your first game of preseason is against a, a non-league slash potentially a League Two side, then I don't think that's the end of the world. That's a, that's a sort of first warm-up game preseason, getting some legs, uh, getting some some sort of distance into the legs. At that point, it doesn't have to be too strenuous, and of course, and then throughout preseason, you build up the intensity levels and the and the opposition you face. So I don't think it's the end of the world if they play Wrexham. If it was their final game of a preseason tour, maybe I'd have more issues, um, and maybe we'll see the the schedule when it, it drops at some point. But uh, but yeah, it is important because Chelsea don't want a repeat of of last summer. They need to have a, well, I was say, a more professional preseason. Basically, they need to have a a proper Premier League club preseason, not what they did last year, because that is not going to help any head coach, no matter who it is at that point. And I guess we now turn things back towards the Premier League and Leeds United. Uh, They are in a relegation battle, uh, to say the least. And somewhat of a surprise in in some senses, given the performance we saw from Leeds against Chelsea early in the season. Um, They pressed the life out of Chelsea that day. And obviously, I think Conor Gallagher was the main guy struggling because of that. Um, I think... Kaladu Kulabali had a tough afternoon against maybe Brendan Aronson and they're perhaps not as high in the table as what I would have expected after that day. Um, they are under new management as well. Uh, what do you see from Leeds and the dangers they're going to present Chelsea? And, you know, we, we've labored this point in the last few weeks, but obviously, again, massive for Chelsea to try and claim three points even if the season isn't going to, you know, hit the heights of what Chelsea expected this year as well. Yeah, it's important to build momentum. It's important to win, to go into Dortmund off the back of a win, to have that feeling, to have that little shot of confidence going into that game probably makes this one very important. Leeds under Javi Gracia, I, I've, I didn't see the game last week. I know him from his time at Watford. He is a coach who gets his team very well organised, I'm not sure if you're going to see the absolute relentless pressing of a Bielsa slash Jesse Marsh team, but they'll work very, very hard off the ball. They'll close down spaces. They'll make it very difficult for Chelsea. Um, We know the historic rivalry between Chelsea and Leeds. I would say from a Chelsea perspective, it's not quite as, as bitter as their rivalry with Tottenham now. That's more simply because they haven't played each other a great deal over the last couple of decades. But for a a certain vintage of Chelsea supporter, Leeds is a massive game. Uh, Leeds at home is is one that Chelsea fans of, of, say, a certain age will be desperate for their side to win. I'd be quite interesting to see what the atmosphere slash mood is at full time if they don't. I mean, will it be similar to Tottenham, where it's a sort of apathy, shrug of the shoulders? I would expect some more boos if Chelsea didn't win. But 
the important thing for Chelsea is to A, score a goal and, and then B, win the game by some form and hope that that's enough to carry them into Dortmund with some kind of momentum. Because as we said, the Premier League season, the, being Leeds, I don't really, you know, it, it's yes, of course, you, you want to win and it's important that you do. But beyond building some momentum for Dortmund, it's not going to really transform Chelsea's Premier League season. We know what Chelsea's Premier League season is going to finish up as now. It's going to be a mid-table seventh, maybe to, I don't know, I don't want to say lower than 10th. Um, so, yeah, it, it's an important game in the context of emotionally to, to supporters, in the context of building some sort of confidence going into Dortmund. But in terms of the Premier League season as a whole, I mean, I don't really think it has a great deal of impact at this point, given where Chelsea are. Yeah, I think what you mentioned about the reaction of the supporters is going to be really interesting uh, this weekend, particularly if Chelsea go a goal behind, um, just how the stadium responds. And I, I just wonder if you think, does it being Leeds kind of make it more likely that there could be that sort of tension and anxiety in the crowd to kind of react badly at that moment? Or will that rivalry, you know, overcome that a little bit so that the atmosphere is still you know, a pretty up for one and supportive one for Chelsea? Honestly, I don't know. Um, you'd like to think the supporters will be up for it, but they might be a little bit browbeaten at this point, uh, to be completely honest. Uh, it's it's hard to, to watch your team lose every week and have that same level of, of excitement for games. Uh, it's hard to get yourself up to a, to a point when you do feel like going and singing and chanting and, and creating a hostile atmosphere. You know for well the Leeds fans who travel down are going to do that. They're still embroiled in, in a relegation battle. It's a big game for them. You don't want it to feel like a home game for Leeds. So you'd like to think the Chelsea fans will have some sort of reaction or or try to lift themselves. But you can't give... I've actually probably been quite fairly, you know, critical of the atmosphere at Stamford Bridge this season. I really don't think it's been good for for most of the season. But I don't have too many crumbles if the fans at the moment are not at the level they perhaps need to be given the football that they've watched over the last two months because there isn't a lot to really get behind. Um, so it may be a case of the team having to show something show some sort of, of application, so some sort of, I don't know how I'm going to sound like 40-year-old old bloke, some sort of passion, desire, some commitment that has been lacking. And it wasn't there against Tottenham, wasn't there for the first half against Southampton. And to be actually credit to the fans against Southampton, I thought second half at Stamford Bridge against Southampton, the Chelsea fans did rally and, and really to try and push the team forward. So maybe I'm doing them an injustice here, but I can understand if they're not quite at the uh, fever pitch that they may have been for, for games against Leeds in, in years past. And maybe one person who could, you know, inspire some passion could be N'Golo Kante. Um, I think whether he's available this weekend is obviously one thing in terms of how Potter has reintegrated those injured players so far, but both him and Pulisic have kind of been set to make another step up in the training this week and become more involved in that first team picture um i guess where where are they at, at the minute and do they have a chance of featuring against leeds if, if not uh starting the game 
I would be very surprised if either of them featured because they're not fully back in team training yet. And to be fair, most of the players this season, or at least since the World Cup break, have been given about two weeks in full training before they're, they're brought back into the matchday squad. Do you do that with N'Golo Kante for Dortmund, even if he's only had three or four days team training, Max? It's, it's a huge risk because the last thing you want to do, and I mean, you'd be asking Kante to put himself at risk almost then to suddenly throw him back in against Dortmund after six months out seems irresponsible, I guess. But maybe the situation is what it is and you need to, to go with your strongest 11 no matter their fitness i mean it feels it feels unfair to to continually are and this is what N'Golo Kante has had to deal with for the last four years it's almost a situation of yes N'Golo we know your body's hurting we know you've just come back from a, an injury we know you're not 100 percent fit but we really need to win this game so can you play and N'Golo Kante because of, of the nature of who he is as a person has always said yes He's always put his body through extra rigours that he probably shouldn't have. Yeah, we all know that a lot of his injury issues or, or seemingly the start of his injury issues came after that Europa League final win against Arsenal in, in 2019 when he he walked off of training the night before with a, with a knee injury and everyone's like, okay, well, that's that. He, he can't play. But he somehow made his way through that game, produced an absolutely fantastic performance to his credit but seems to be very much suffering from it ever since. And it is a, it's a pattern. Kante's rush, rushed back, plays three or four games maybe, has another setback. Chelsea have been very, very careful this time around with N'Golo Kante. They've really built him back up slowly. They are actually quite confident they've got his body to a very good point, maybe better than it's been for a while. Do you then risk all that hard work on Kante's part as well? Because rehab is painstakingly dull at times but you have to do it as a player you go through all that work for six months to then risk it by chucking you in against Dortmund and I know the context of the game it's massive game it is basically Chelsea's season in 90 minutes I would not want to make that decision and I don't have to so I'm fortunate but I I don't think we'll see him against Leeds I don't know if we'll see them against Dortmund the 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 risk is clear. It's whether or not you feel the risk is worth it. Whether And then, more importantly, whether or not N'Golo Kante is willing to take that risk. Very much so. Very much so. And as you say, things have been very measured thus far. Um, we have seen Graham Potter make a number of changes, I guess, during his time as Chelsea bosses the whole. But six changes uh, in the last couple of games Potter did make the point that if you look back to the Dortmund game and compared to the Spurs game, there was only one change. And perhaps that's a hint of what his favoured side may be, or at least elements of it. What are you expecting this weekend and what, what changes are required? <laughs> um, I think you've got to try, in my mind, and again, we've probably circled back to this a lot throughout this whole pocket, or I have especially. You probably try and run the team that you'd ideally want to play against Dortmund. Give that, nine, obviously not 90 minutes, but the best part of an hour 
to try and build some connection. Who, whoever you want to play as your centre-back pairing or, or a back three, you run that against Leeds. You you run your midfield pairing, be, it'll probably be Enzo and, and another. Um, I'd still quite like to see Dennis Acaro and Enzo play some more minutes. I know they got half uh, of, it, of it against Tottenham. You pick your wingers. Modric came on, I thought, looked lively. I mean, actually got to the byline a few times, but Chelsea hadn't done, so maybe you go with him. I just think you, you, you make the changes accordingly to how you want to set up against Dortmund. And I know you should never run, or you should never, in theory, prioritise one game over another, but there's, as I said, there's no point in Chelsea not doing that at this stage, given their Premier League position. So for me, make the changes you want to make for Dortmund. Run them against Leeds. Get some sort of connection in that team if you can. And then make your changes about the hour mark so that you don't burn the guys out for, for Tuesday night because there is, is quite a, a quick turnaround. So I don't know how many changes he'll make, but maybe one or two to try and get that team set up in the way he wants it to be. Yeah, certainly tough decisions on the way as there have been already. And I think we shall leave it there for today. I'll not put Adam through making a prediction for the weekend's game this time because it's not been fun recently, um, as I'm sure supporters know. But um, nevertheless, join us at football.london for all the latest updates throughout the week. Um, we'll be there at, Le- uh, at the Leeds game this weekend and obviously Dortmund, Dortmund next week. So make sure to stick around, leave us a review uh, for the podcast, particularly if it's a good one. And, you know, feel free to subscribe as well. Uh, so thanks for joining us. <laughs>